Chapter Fourteen of A Candle for Our Lady by Regina Victoria Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Fourteen. Four days later, Jem stood in the Strand, the great thoroughfare between London and Westminster, and stared at the incredible scene, feeling himself altogether outside it. Entering by the Alders Gate at dawn, after an uneventful journey over the old Roman road through Newmarket, he had felt a thrill at sight of the fabled mass of the tower and the tall spire of st paul's atop ludgate hill catching the first rosy glow of sun while all its lesser fellows still lurked in blue shadows dropping into the nearest church it was dedicated he noticed to st olive king of norway he heard mass and gave thanks for a safe journey coupled with a prayer for the success of his mission his next business was to obtain food for roland and himself Finding a public stable in an open court in a cook-shop nearby, he left Roland gratefully munching oats while he breakfasted on porridge, wheat-cakes, and ale. Then he began to make inquiries about the court. Here was his first difficulty. Though himself from the Midlands, he could scarcely make himself understood by the Cockneys, and their speech was to him equally unintelligible, seeming a mere nasal jumble of contractions. Leaving the cook-house to fetch Roland, he put his question to the stableman. He met the same puzzled stare, though the man was quick enough to seize the silver and copper coins he offered, biting them to test their worth. As Jim repeated his question, a man in a substantial coat and riding a good horse drew up. He glanced at Jim, almost with affection, as an exile greets one from his home. "'Perchance I can help you, lad,' he said, dismounting. Jim turned to him with relief. At least you understand me, sir. The merchant, for such he seemed, laughed. I'm from Dunstable, and I'd guess you're not far. Iworth, near Palton, though I'm just come from Norfolk on business. At court? The man ran a shrewd eye over Jem's homespun clothes, and another over Roland, marking the contrast. Jem flushed. At least with one in the king's service. Tell me, sir, is the court now at Greenwich, or— no here yonder at whitehall the gentleman pointed west and south toward the river whitehall jim was puzzled by the name twas formerly called york place being the london palace of the archbishops of york one of those in a lower tone that the king took when the great cardinal wolsey fell into disgrace oh how does one reach it either by barge at the river stairs or since you have your horse Landward, along the strand, passing Temple Bar. With many thanks, Jem bade him good day, and mounting Roland, set out for the strand. As the day wore on, and the great city awoke to teeming, bustling, jostling life, the thrill of adventure, the novelty of his situation, even the urgency of his errand, dull before the overwhelming immensity of London. The city sprawled over both sides of the broad, silver-green Thames, and the bewildering mass of roofs and turrets and steeples. The narrow intersecting streets were more like ravines between cliffs than thoroughfares, and led he knew not where. Not even the river, when he got a good look at it, offered an unobstructed view, but was spanned here and there by bridges crowded with houses and shops, while the water teemed with barges and sailboats and lighters loaded with cargoes for the war, and merchant ships docked below Tower Wharf and at Deptford. A clamor of bells and whistles and cartwheels and hoofbeats the cries of vendors and the clang of street signs deafened Jem with their continual uproar. The odor of rotting refuse, 
dumped into open canals, assailed his nostrils, and turned him half sick. But he managed a wan smile as he remembered how, not so long ago, he had drowsed by the willows of his native Ree, and daydreamed of coming up to London, as a knight of Arthurian legend might have dreamed of the Holy Grail. Well, like it or not, here he was with a duty to perform. So with an encouraging pat on Roland's black head, he turned him westward through crowded Fleet Street. Dodging riders, pedestrians, dogs, and coaches, he passed the recently repainted post that marked Temple Bar, the city's boundaries, and entered by way of the Strand into Westminster. Again the sight was dazzling, though not quite in the way of London proper. Here there were vast stone and brick structures, capped with turrets and spires and interspersed with courts, and straight ahead was a gate-tower of checkered blue and red stone, with two octagonal turrets, pierced with leaded windows, that caught the sun's rays in a burning blaze. Jim drew in his breath at the sudden beauty. Whitehall? A liveried officer nodded briefly and pointed to a narrow archway east of the main entrance for carriages. Jim dismounted in the court beyond, facing a large walled tennis court. How, he wondered, in this maze of buildings, courts, gardens, and galleries, would he ever find Richard Norris? But the groom who took Roland in charge directed him through what he called the privy garden, glowing with poppies, fuchsias, and roses, and borders of pansies and crocuses, up a short flight of stairs to the stone gallery. Here, for the first time, Jim found himself stopped by a sentry with a gleaming axe-headed halbert. Pass or password? the sentry demanded. Jim, of course, had neither, but he put on a bold front. I'm but newly come to London, too, to see a friend, Mr. Richard Norris, groom of the King's Chamber. Allowed to pass, he was immediately met by an usher demanding his credentials again. Jem gave his name and business, and was bidden to wait among a group of visitors. Now that he was here, almost touching the awful machinery estate, he felt a little dizzy. A mere country lad, who a fortnight back never expected to see London, or look on the face of his king, now commissioned with an affair of the Privy Council? He tried to strengthen his wavering spirits by repeating Sir William Waltham's motto, God helping, there's nothing to fear. But the lights danced disturbingly on the tapestries, lining the wall, on the mass of jovial likeness of King Henry himself, on the bejeweled befurred personages bustling to and fro. One among these last drew Jem's attention, a heavy, middle-aged man in a black-furred robe, a black, square-crowned cap, topping a pasty face, from which the flesh hung slack in a tier of double chins. A counsellor, perhaps, for he seemed to be reading notes. Something in that watchful, secretive face, in the darting glance of those small, rodent-like eyes, sent a chill through Jim. He didn't even see the usher return until he spoke. "'Sorry, Master Reynolds. Mr. Norris is in attendance on the King at Greenwich.' "'When,' Jim began dismayed, for even now Sir William's fate hung in the balance. "'Can't say. A few days. A week, perhaps.' "'I've come a long way, from Waltham Manor, Norfolk.' Urgency impelled Jim to cast prudence to the wind. "'My business concerns Sir William Waltham.' The flabby man in the black cap turned, a little smile touching his thin lips. "'Perhaps I can help you, young man. You're here on behalf of Sir William Waltham?' E yes sir, my lord. Jim cast an appealing glance at the usher. Master Reynolds, it is the Lord Cromwell. The usher whispered and quickly bowed away. Cromwell! Jim felt his heart lurch. 
Again his brain turned giddy. Cromwell! The man whose name was a terror to the kingdom. He who was the author and the mastermind of the condemnation of Bishop Fisher, of Thomas More, of the suppression of the monasteries, of Walsingham Shrine itself. Yet the voice beside him spoke gently. I will gladly serve you in the case of Sir William Waltham, if I can. You have additional evidence? This, my lord. And Jim pulled out the petition. By the light of a crescent overhead, Cromwell perused the document. Ah, oh, yes, yes, I see. Well, now, go, Master Reynolds, and get some rest. You'll be summoned when, he smiled, when a decision has been reached. In a daze, but marvelously relieved, Jim bowed and started down the stairs. He scarcely reached the bottom when he felt his arms seized from behind. Then he found himself between guards. What's this? Vainly he tried to wrench free. You are under arrest, Master Reynolds. We have orders to convey you to the gatehouse. End of chapter 14